And I could be wrong about this, but is this for baby Idri's first time with us in worship? I thought that might be the case, in which case I just want to say welcome to Idri. It's so good to have you here, and I'm glad you brought your parents because it's nice to see them as well. <laughs> Tyler and Amy, thank you for being here. It's just great, great to have you. In our journey through Mark's gospel so far, a question has persisted and persists still in this morning's reading. Who is Jesus? Just last week, Amy preached on Herod's fear that Jesus was John the Baptist, whom Herod had beheaded, his fear that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life, reincarnated. Well, it turns out that Herod was not alone in his fearful wondering about that. When Jesus asks his his disciples in our reading this morning, who do people say that I am? They answer him, John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. The question persists. Who is Jesus? There are many rumors and answers and wonderings that have rolled around throughout that first half of Mark. But in today's scripture, we encounter, for the very first time, a new answer. Jesus asked the disciples then directly, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Now, Mark began his gospel. It's been a while since we were there, so I'm just going to remind you. Mark began his gospel. These were the very first words. Here begins the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, according to these opening words of Mark. That's the story he sets out to tell us. And he's about to tell us that gospel good news story of that Christ. And Peter's answer today... So the question, who is Jesus? You are the Christ, the Messiah. It's the first time that we encounter that Greek word for Christ or Messiah since that first verse of the gospel. Here we are, smack dab in the middle of Mark's gospel, and we at last have a character in the story who's figured out how to answer the persistent question of who is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. I heard one commentator, one other lover of the gospel this morning, reflect that the first half of Mark's gospel is the book of the question, that persistent question, who is Jesus? And the second half of Mark's gospel, which we're heading into, is the book of the understanding. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah? What is a Christ? (laughs) And today we're at that fulcrum point, right in the middle between those two books of the question and then the seeking to understand its answer. So if Jesus is indeed the Christ, what on earth does being the Christ mean? And that question does not feel 2,000 years old to me. It feels pretty contemporary, in fact. So we get to head in now from this morning forward into Mark's exploration of that question. But for today... We have, at long last, Peter's answer. You are the Christ, the Messiah. And it is pretty remarkable that Peter 
can see that, can say that. I'm not quite sure how he's figured it out, but he has. Um, But it's even more remarkable that he can claim it given the context of this conversation. Mark tells us that during this whole exchange, they are in the villages around Caesarea Philippi, a city named for both Caesar, Caesarea, and Philip, a member of Herod's family, Caesarea Philippi. The city, named for two of the empire's powerhouse men, was also adjacent to a sacred spring, a grotto, and other holy sites that were all dedicated to the Greek god Pan. So this is the context for this conversation. Jesus doesn't simply ask the disciples this persistent question in the middle of the desert. He asks them this persistent question, who do you say that I am, surrounded by shrines to earthly and heavenly deities. All competitors for their ultimate loyalty and the ultimate loyalty of others. So it is dwarfed by the monuments to the Greek god Pan, to Caesar, to Herod's dynastic family, that Peter amazingly is able to find his way to confession. It makes his confession and his claim all the more remarkable, given that context. You are the Christ, the Messiah. And he thereby resists the temptation to place his ultimate loyalty anywhere else but at the feet of his rabbi, his teacher, his traveling companion, and his friend, Jesus. So here we are, halfway through Mark, right at the fulcrum, and that persistent question, who is Jesus, at long last has an answer, a right and true answer. And now Mark is off to tell the second part of his story. Now that we know who Jesus is, what on earth does it mean? (laughs) Well, Jesus, right after Peter provides that answer, starts to teach them what it means. He doesn't stop at all. It means he's going to suffer at the hands of political and religious authorities, that they will reject him and ultimately kill him, and that after three days he will rise again. Congratulations! You're the Christ! (laughs) But they've barely arrived at the answer to the persistent question, and they are absolutely not ready. They are not ready to hear what that answer means, given that what it means is not victory. It's not victory over the empire's power. Or at least it's not victory as they've ever understood it (laughs) to be. They recoil from Jesus's teaching. We might recoil at Jesus's teaching about it, what it means to be the Christ. And Peter, the one who makes the first confession, pulls him aside to rebuke him. Uh, I love in the honesty that old school word of rebuking. It feels like it gives the weight of the moment. Peter pulls him aside to rebuke him, and Jesus rebukes him back. <laughs> and then he carries on with some more difficult teaching, Jesus does, about what being the Christ actually means. He talks about denial of self. He talks about taking up across whatever that means, especially at this point in the story. They must have no idea. 
He talks about following in his way. Jesus describes losing one's life for the sake of the good news gospel. And he implores them to never be ashamed of him and his words. But they're surely still reeling from Peter's confession, from all that mutual rebuking, and they are just not ready. The time of Jesus teaching them what what it means to be the Christ, what it actually means, a time of teaching that's going to take them all the way through the end of Mark's gospel. That time of teaching has only just begun. So it's in the wake of all of this that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain where he is, as Mark describes it, transfigured before them. His figure has transformed. Here at the fulcrum of Mark's gospel, Jesus glows. Forefathers and deceased pillars in the faith, Moses and Elijah, also appear. The whole scene is grand and brilliant and epic and certainly more victorious looking than suffering and death sound to them. Uh, And this time when I was listening, so I didn't make a note of this earlier, but when I was listening to Amy read our story, our gospel story, I heard uh, Jesus saying, some of you will not die before God's reign is established here in power. And Peter, James, and John must rightly think, oh, here it is. Great. We finally have the glory. It's grand. It's brilliant. It's epic. Peter is enamored. That is more like it, he must be thinking. He wants to stay. He wants to build a couple of tiny houses there on top of that peak and never again return to the terrifying visions contained in Jesus' teaching from just a few days earlier. As Jan Richardson describes in one of her transfiguration blessings, we could build walls around this blessing, put a roof over it. We could bring in a table, chairs, have the most amazing meals. We could make a home. We could stay. And in Mark's version of this story, even Jesus is struck speechless at this point. He doesn't know what to say, according to Mark. He can see that Peter and James and John are terrified, and he doesn't know what to say to them. So, in even Jesus' speechlessness at that moment, A cloud overshadows them all, and from the cloud comes a voice, a voice echoing the voice that came from the heavens when Jesus was baptized by John the baptizer in the Jordan back in chapter 1. That voice at the baptism said, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the voice in the cloud today, in today's transfiguration story, says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. This time, instead of addressing Jesus directly, the voice from the cloud, declaring Jesus beloved, in the same manner as earlier, addresses, instead of Jesus, the disciples, and directs them to listen to him. The divine voice confirms that everyone has entered a season of teaching and learning. That second part of Mark's gospel. Jesus is going to be teaching what being the Christ means. And the disciples are to listen. Uh, 
and to learn, even and perhaps especially when they don't like what they're hearing. Just as it took half a gospel for them to even be able to answer the persistent question correctly, it's going to take them at least half a gospel to begin to understand what that answer means. Now, I do want to acknowledge this morning that this transfiguration story is bizarre. I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. It's bizarre. One commentator I heard, um, another commentator that I heard this week, suggested that the transfiguration story is less a story to figure out, to understand up here, and is more a story to evoke, to evoke experiences of the divine, of something that we might call glorious. And so here's part of what this story evokes in me. As I've already said, the transfiguration story um, in it, Peter, James, and John see Jesus's glory, or something that they call glory, that they call uh, glowing, illumination, and they see Moses and Elijah. Now, it's difficult to know precisely what they actually saw with their eyes. They didn't snap a photo. We don't have an Instagram post from them about what they actually saw, right? It's difficult to know precisely what they saw with their eyes because what they're describing is a mystical experience. And those experiences, I think, are classically indescribable. They're hard to put words to. But I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that on the mountain, whatever they saw, whatever they experienced, something that had been clouded was made visible. The opaqueness of Jesus' identity became transparently clear. The disciples came face to face with something that they named glory. And Jesus' chosenness and his belovedness was in a moment clear to them. And then in the next moment, they look and see Jesus by himself alone. They saw Jesus himself, Mark says which evokes further wondering in me. Which was the real Jesus? The one that they were used to? The one with whom they were familiar and more comfortable? The one that was restored to his regular old self in the aftermath of that bleachy vision? Or was the real Jesus the one that frightened and electrified them with his luminosity, with his glowing? And it's a false choice, of course, because one doesn't have to be the real Jesus to the detriment of the other. But it does make me wonder if on the mountain of transfiguration they glimpsed Jesus as he really was. They saw his true nature when momentarily the scales fell from their eyes. Or, you know, Amy talked about the veil, when the veil dropped and they saw something that they couldn't, hadn't, seen before, something clear about Jesus. And that whole scene, all this wondering, makes me aware that in my own life, a certain amount of opaqueness is sometimes welcome. Just think of the expression like a deer in headlights. (laughs) Luminosity (laughs) sometimes leads to paralysis. 
Sometimes seeing things and people for who and what they really are can be blinding. And what that evokes for me is the occasional shared glance between people. Have you ever, ever had that experience where suddenly, in a shared glance with someone, with another, you realize that something deeply true has been spoken? You see them more fully or transparently than you had before, or you feel seen in that way? A glance like that is difficult to maintain, which is why I suppose I call it a glance. Because when this has happened to me, I can't hold it long before having to look away from the intensity of the experience. And that, the looking away, almost always breaks the spell. Most of what we say to one another in our lives is various shades of guarded or calculated in some way or rote, which doesn't mean that, or or, or even just surface level stuff. And and that doesn't mean that all of that stuff is meaningless. That's an important part of being community with one another and communicating with one another and sharing all of life with one another. But occasionally something hits below the spiritual belt And we have no choice but to eventually look away and let the moment pass. That sort of luminous transparency can be electrifying and a little bit frightening. And while it may, in theory, be what we want, we want that kind of real, transparent, deep encounter, luminous transparency can be a difficult gift to receive and to sort of hold on to over a long term. So we are heading into Lent, friends. Next week, we are going to be gathered in homes across our city and region for house church. This is a preview to an announcement to come. Uh, If you haven't gotten an an invitation yet, you will soon. Um, And if you haven't gotten one, let us know. Make sure you get one. We're going to be gathering in homes across our city and region, and when next we gather in this room all together, it will be two weeks from today, and it will be the first Sunday of Lent. And the Lent team met um, a number of weeks ago now and uh, arrived at a theme for our Lenten worship that was derived from our scriptures, which are taken from this second half of Mark, the book of understanding, the book of exploring what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, as Jesus sets out in teaching the disciples that. And that Lenten theme that emerged for us as we dwelt with the scriptures was, we want to see. (laughs) Do we? (laughs) We want to see. Though we may indeed be frightened of what will be revealed, we lean into our deepest and truest desire to, as the voice from the cloud compels, listen to Jesus. To learn, our deepest and truest desire, to learn alongside the disciples, the confounded disciples, what it means that he's the Christ. To lean into our deepest and truest desire to follow in his way. We say that, that we are followers in the way of Jesus. And so that is our deepest and truest desire, um, even if that way is the way of the cross. And even if that phrase, the way of the cross, confuses us or 
terrifies us a little bit. We want to lean into our deepest and truest desire to see. To see in all of its luminous transparency how we are being invited to transform. So as we listen, as we learn together, as we follow, as we seek to see, as we seek to hold the beloved's gaze, that's part of what I've been thinking about out of this story, holding the beloved's gaze. As we do all of that together, may the divine cloud overshadow us with its sacred presence. May it be so.